the blockchain experience, experience. Bringing dope content to the audience. Welcome to the blockchain experience. Bringing dope content to the audience. It's the blockchain spell made of David's got so much to tell. GM, GM, and welcome to another episode of the Blockchain Experience. I'm your host, Meta David. Today's guest is Brian Brinkman, a digital pop artist who ascended from The Tonight Show and Saturday Night Live to having his work sold at auction houses such as Sotheby's and Christie's. You can find him on Super Rare, Nifty Gateway, and he was one of the first artists curated on Art Blocks. Brian and I talked about his journey and some interesting topics like one of ones versus additions, how much time he spends creating versus marketing slash networking, and some cool things he's got coming up. I always love talking to Brian, so it's cool to be able to talk to him live on the podcast. So we have our conversation with Brian, and after that, we'll do the shout outs. But before we get to all that, a word from our sponsors. Ledger is the smartest way to secure crypto holdings. Their hardware wallets are trusted by over 4 million customers. Ledger can be used to secure, store, and manage over 1,800 crypto assets. Using the Ledger Live app, you will have a one-stop shop for your crypto needs. Buy, sell, exchange, and grow your assets with Ledger's partner securely and easily. Stop getting your wallet drained. Head over to ledger.metadavideth.com and take self-custody today. Have you ever wanted to display your NFT art in the physical world? Look no further than TokenFrame. TokenFrame's patent high-quality physical displays start at 10 inches and run all the way up to 55 inches. They're truly built for authenticity. Just sign in with your wallet, connect to Wi-Fi, and cast your NFTs. It's really that simple. And best of all, no subscriptions. TokenFrame supports Ethereum, Polygon, and Solana with Tezos on the way soon. It's no wonder they're trusted by OpenSea, SuperRare, Nifty Gateway, and more. Start flexing your NFT art by visiting tokenframe.metadavideth.com. Again, that's tokenframe.metadavideth.com. Brian Brinkman, welcome to the podcast. How's it going? Hey, David. Thanks for having me. Doing well. Thanks for coming on. So you're very well known in this space, and I feel like I've seen your name everywhere since I first entered. But just for our listeners, can you introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Brian Brinkman. I'm a digital artist, primarily in the Web3 space now, but my art focuses anywhere from animation to generative art to illustration to all sorts of stuff. So I, I love to dabble in all the different aspects of the blockchain media. Yeah. Now you've got a really interesting background. So as I understand it, you actually started off working in the media space before going into Web3 or how does that look like? Yeah, yeah. My my background artistically probably started when I was in high school. I was making content for the internet and sites like Newgrounds and stuff. From there, I went to college in Philadelphia at the University of the Arts for animation. And after that, I started working in, I guess you'd call it the industry, but it was all sorts of different industries because you, when you're an animator, you're a jack of all trades and you know how to do editing and motion graphics and sound and all these other things. I started out doing working in fashion advertising. And then eventually moved over to toy commercials and rap music videos and all sorts of stuff. And then some animated television series, some MTV shows. And then for a long stretch there, I was working on late night television shows, the, the Tonight Show, Jimmy Fallon and Saturday Night Live. I was at those at the same time for 
about eight years. Dude, so I have to ask, like, how do you get a gig like that? Because I think there's a lot of people lining up for something like that on their resume. Yeah, they always say it's like who you know, and that, that was the case in that sense, because a, a friend that I went to college with worked there at the beginning of late night, and occasionally he would take time off to go work on other projects, and I would fill in for him. And so, you know, four years into working there, he was like, I'm going to go pursue a directing career. And so when he left, I had already been in that role and built trust. And so they were like, okay, we'll, we'll bring in Brian and we can have him do a trial run. And it worked out. It worked out. Awesome. So uh, you're not doing those things anymore, I'm assuming. So no, I, yeah, I left those about two years ago. Okay. So, uh, and, and when did you enter like the web three space? Was it right around the same time? No, I, I joined the web three space about a year or so before I left the shows. I was just doing it on the side cause I joined in like January, 2020. And so that first year I was learning about NFTs, releasing art on super rare, and then eventually Nifty gateway and then art blocks and all these other places. And then at a certain point, about a year into it, the NFT market exploded and it became apparent that I could pursue it full-time as a career and not just like a side hobby. And so, yeah, that, that was the, the push that I, I think the release on art blocks and a few other things gave me enough like money in my bank account to say, okay, I can go see how this works for a little while. And also all these people were investing in my art and buying it on secondary and all these other things. And so if people are interested in what I'm doing, I should put all of my effort into that. How did you learn about the Web3 space? And was your initial entry more as like a collector or was it as a creator, a little bit of both? Or how does that, what was that journey like for you? I will say my wife, Ashley, she had told me about like crypto kitties back when they were around and the, the glitch kitties and all this stuff. And I, I found it interesting, but I found what I tried to do it, I couldn't wrap my head around how to buy Ethereum and all this other stuff at the time. And so it was like, oh, that's interesting. And it went away. Then I was December of 2019. This artist, I, I love to collect his work, both physically, I have the shirts and paintings and all this stuff. His name's Killer Acid. He was one of the earliest super rare artists. And so I saw him tweeting about, I have a new animated GIF available on super rare. You can buy it with Ethereum. And I was, that made me go, okay, wait, what is super rare? What is an NFT? What is Ethereum actually? And you're able to sell animations. So to me, as someone with an animation background, I was never able to find a method to monetize that skill outside of working on shows or doing hired gigs for commercials or whatever. So that immediately was like, oh, this is, to me, I saw it as like, this is the new Tumblr. People are making cool animated content for this world. And it would be a fun thing to experiment. And as opposed to doing these like gallery shows in LA where I was having to ship stuff out there and they're taking a huge percentage and I wasn't really making much money. It wasn't sustainable. I, I, I immediately was like, Ooh, this is interesting. The secondary royalty aspect was really awesome. And then just this kind of forward thinking way of looking at what can be art. So that, that hooked me in. I spent like a month learning about the space, applied to super rare, got on. And then I minted my first NFT in February, 2020. Do you think your background and track record in the physical space pre your Web3 entry really helped as far as some of the learnings that you had there and maybe some of the following came over to Web3? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think a, a mix of having that kind of gallery experience in the past taught me how to create marketing around my art, create 
you know, promo images and say, hey, this is available, go buy this. So that helped. Working in those late night shows, those are so social media savvy. I think working on those for years, you start to pick up a little bit of like how to go about using Twitter and go about using all these other platforms to share content. And so if you look at my involvement on social media, a portion of it is about my art and what I make. Another portion of it is talking about the space and having commentary and talking about other artists and making jokes and all this other stuff. And I think having that wide variety allowed me to grow a following, not just from collectors, but just from people interested in the space that wanted interesting viewpoints. Have your tweeting patterns changed since you first started in this space to what they are now, just because the algorithm's always evolving. And I don't know if that's something that you're tracking with X slash Twitter. And then in addition to that, there's been like this new meta where people are saying, well, you should focus on one thing and only tweet about or X about, that. I don't know what we call it, <laughs> posts about that. Do they? Yeah. Oh. Just because there's a school of thought that you're all right. So you build a following in this like one niche or like this one uh, segment. And then, so let's say if it's NFTs, but then if you start uh, tweeting about like COVID or something, then the following goes, oh, wait, this is a little unexpected. And that might cause a little bit of riff between people. And it might not be something as contentious yeah. about COVID. It could even just be something like sports related. And somehow the algorithm could penalize you because they put you in this one category and then now you're in another one. So what I'm gathering is for you, maybe you've been just pretty consistent staying in your yeah. lane and kind of just doing your thing, regardless of what are the trends and stuff going on there with the X I algorithm. I try not to chase the algorithm. Yeah. I find that it, the rules they have change all the time. Mm -hmm. And it's very clear to me when, especially now that people are trying to monetize their tweets, it's very clear to me when they're like engagement farming and doing all this stuff. And it's, I find it a little off-putting. So I, I, the way I look at it, as long as I just kind of maintain my authenticity, even if I don't get 200,000 followers or something, it doesn't really matter because it's about just hitting the, the audience that I'm actually trying to target, not necessarily branch out in all these other ways. But yeah, I don't know. I, I do find it fluctuates depending on how well the space is doing. There's a pretty direct correlation to like how many followers I get a day or something. It's like at, at the peak, you're getting like a hundred a day. And at the, the bottom of the bear, you're getting like maybe negative two or something. So, <laughs> Couple of drop -offs. Uh, I think you could look at like most NFT accounts, statistic charts and correlate them and they match pretty closely to like the Ethereum charts. That's interesting, especially if you're in the space, what's going on like with Ethereum and what's going on with tokens, it correlates and ma it follows that trend yeah. pretty. When things are going well, people are interested and start looking and following. And when things aren't going well, they're gonna go find something else to <laughs> think about. Along those same lines, I've seen tweets about people complaining about others leaving the space and saying goodbye and they're leaving the space. I haven't seen the actual tweets of people saying goodbye. I'm hearing it from other people. Is your feed a little bit different? Are you seeing a lot of like goodbye tweets? And I'm asking this just because you have a substantially bigger following than I do and you're more engulfed in it. So I don't know if you're seeing firsthand people actually see, saying goodbye. I haven't seen it myself very often, if at all but it could also just be having a smaller following. I'm only hearing about it from other people saying, hey, stop yeah. saying goodbye and that sort of, so what are your thoughts yeah. on that? Are people really leaving I've, the space at the rate that people are thinking that's happening or what, what does that landscape look like? I've seen a small handful of these type of tweets mm -hmm. and I understand 
where they're coming from. It's a very stressful space to be in as an artist where you're under the microscope and being pressured in a lot of different ways. My, my real feeling is that for everybody that tweets that out publicly, there's probably like 20 people that are silent, like quiet quitting as they call it, which is to me, if you're publicly doing that, you're burning a bridge. And I don't, I, I think most collectors are okay with artists taking a break. Sometimes I think artists do that as a way of venting frustration or maybe as a last minute, a bit of a marketing move of if you want me to stay, now's your chance to go buy my art. And so I don't think it's right or wrong. I do worry that the optics of it, if you publicly quit and dismiss the space, that has a very negative effect on all the people that supported you. Versus if you just stay quiet, take a break, come back when things are better. There's going to be judgment of that kind of stuff as well. But I think as long as you're continuing to make art, when I buy art from artists, I'm just, I want to support them to continue making art. And so if they quit, that feels like that investment in them was a loss versus necessarily my, my own bags going down. Yeah, as a collector, I tend to agree. I think as collectors, we have to be very sympathetic and uh, sensitive to the fact that it is really tough times right now for a lot of artists. And you just don't see that same volume and velocity. And it's understandable if maybe an artist was doing this full time and they have to pick up another job and they might have might not be able to create art at the same to the same rate of frequency that they used to be, or they might not be on Twitter as frequently. But I think there is something really off-putting about the big goodbye, because to your point, at least the way I read it is it's almost like using a football analogy, like a Hail Mary attempt, just throwing the football up there and hoping to grab some attention, uh, hoping something happens. But I just think that's not really the right approach. And I think that collectors we're all in this together. So I think we all have some degree of compassion and sympathy uh, as a collector. Yeah, the bags are down, but I think long-term we feel optimistic about the space in general. We're not necessarily feeling optimistic about every single token in our bags, uh, but by and large, especially when we're talking about art, because like you mentioned earlier, I think that it's proven at this point that it really actually, like blockchain actually really solved the problem when we're talking about monetization for the artists and then for the collector to be able to prove that provenance. And it just checks so many different boxes. I think the jury's a little bit out on PFP projects or some other projects that are a little bit on the edge out there. PFP projects yeah. with promises of utility and stuff. But I think the art case has been like validated. They might not be trading at the same floor prices and at the same prices that they used to be a couple of years ago. But I think that's just more of a trend in the space in general, but long-term things will turn around. The same thing can happen in the art, physical art space also is that, uh, I hate to say it, it sounds a little bit morbid, but when an artist passes away, you close a chapter on that and then scarcity is no longer yeah, an issue. Locks in. Yeah, yeah. kind of locked well, in. And so I there's plenty of dead artists releasing NFTs now. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, through their estates and stuff. Yeah. Uh, but no, I agree. That's always the interesting thing. Is a lot of people have this assumption that when an artist dies, their value will go up because of scarcity and all this. But in reality, it really depends if there's people championing them after they pass. If they pass away and no one's there to continue their story. Unfortunately, art is an attention economy to a degree. And so the majority of artists that die, their art just becomes uh, almost valueless after a certain amount of time.
which is a bummer, but that's why hopefully this space will get good at creating institutions and estates and things that continue to tell our story. Kind of like the, a lot of money charity drop that I'm a part of this week, which is an artist that passed away a year and a half ago and ever, and we're continuing to make more art to talk about him and share his history. Yeah. My condolences about your friend uh, passing away. It's just a part of life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, he was a good dude, but he was extremely prolific. And I think he will become a part of this history and the space will continue to tell the story. There's plenty of artists that have been in the space that have passed that have fallen into obscurity though. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. So shifting gears a little bit back to your art, where do you draw your inspiration for your art style? It's got like a pop feel to it and you've got cool use of colors, but it's not overly saturated or over the top. What are some of the inspirations that you draw from? Yeah, that's a good question. People that I think are inspirational, like you said, the pop artists, the Keith Herrings, the, the Warhols, I, I appreciated how they were able to blend traditional and commercial art well. And then a lot of animation influences like Don Hertzfeld or Bill Plimpton, and even artists like Killer Acid, who I mentioned earlier, just psychedelic illustrators. I think Don Hertzfeld was such an influence because he made the Oscar nominated short films with stick figures. You just, that, that was when I was in high school, I was like, oh, I can make profound, interesting things without having to be a hyper skilled Disney animator. And it, it's on the same level of appreciation. And I think seeing a lot of independent comic artists influenced by people like Jeffrey Brown, artists that tell stories about themselves and making art. I love music about making music, bands like Cursive and Tim Casher and stuff like that. So I don't know, there's always something really interesting about art that gives insight into the process. And I think a lot of my art has that, that aspect to it. So it seems like there's a lot of thought and weight put into the storytelling aspect of it too, then. Yeah. I, I often say I kind of candy coat my topics with these kind of colorful, fun animations. But then if you want to dive into it, you can learn a story of my journal entry and experience in the space or something. And so a, a piece might just be like a fun, goofy thing, but then when you look at it, it's an, allegory for crypto or art or whatever. So let's talk about one of those uh, things. And you mentioned it earlier. I think you were one of the first artists that was uh, curated on art blocks. Am I right about that? Yeah, I was in the first 10. I think it was the ninth project. Okay. And for our listeners that don't know, art blocks is a generative art platform where the images are stored on the blockchain as opposed to a link where the image is stored off chain. So my question is that getting curated on art blocks is certainly not a small accomplishment. How did you get there? Like, how did that happen? How did that come about? In context, art blocks was not a big sought after platform at the time. <laughs> uh, I like how you, you level know, set with that. <laughs> that was, this was before ringers, this mm -hmm. was before Fidenza. To me, I saw one of the early few art blocks and the fact that it was on chain and interactive was interesting to me because none of the NFTs I'd done before or seen really did that very much. And so that immediately put me into this interesting headspace of what could I make that does that? I want to do on chain art. And so I looked at someone like Lux Pre, who had done a, a previous drop where he took his super rare works and turned them into a generative project. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. So then I looked at my previous drop on Nifty Gateway called the Cloudy Collection, which had these clouds mm -hmm. with wires that kind of swung back and forth, which was also a continuation of a drop, a one of one I made called Wired, 
like six months earlier. And so a lot of these things are just like building on each other. And so that's how with Artblocks, I was working at SNL with this guy, Manny, who's an awesome visual effects artist that also has some coding experience. Now he's got a ton of coding experience, but at the time he was like doing a little bit here and there. And so I, was, I showed him Artblocks. I was like, hey, I think this is really cool. It's like code as art. And that got his like, you know, imagination spinning. And then he was like, okay, yeah, let's try and do this. I think we can make something. And then we just, me and him just went back and forth and built up what became Nimbuds. Like at the time we didn't have faces on them. That was something that once you start to succeed and figure stuff out, you go, okay, how do we add more uniqueness? And then it was like, if we have these eyes and mouths, we can create all these different emotions and feelings out of these characters. And so that we did that in probably just December, Christmas time. We were on vacation from our NBC shows. And so we did it over our holiday break. And what it ended up having was I just, I DM Snowfro, who I didn't really know at the time, but I respected. And I said, hey, look at, uh, me and my buddy made this generative art project. And he was like, I love it. This is so cool. I think he, he saw it as like, this is a family friendly, interesting thing. There was, they hadn't done character type things on art blocks at the time. And this is also at a time before board apes or before hash masks and all these, like the PFP craze hadn't happened yet, but Snowfro was a big CryptoPunk holder. So he appreciated this like generative character world. And so, yeah, he was like, this is great. You want to do a drop in two weeks. It was really that quick essentially. And then we just fine tuned it as fast as we could and hit the ground running. But yeah, I mean, at the time it did, it sold well. And I think it sold out in five minutes, which blew my mind. And that again, led me to saying, oh, I think I can pursue this as a career full time. Art blocks had a big role in changing my life. And it's really amazing to see how much Eric has grown and how much the company has grown. And now it's become a cultural institution, which that's the fun part about the space is you take a lot of these weird risks and sometimes they flop and then sometimes they become like a part of art history. And so I think that's. You never really know what's going to happen, but looking back on it now, it, it's easy to look back and be like, oh man, that was such a good idea to do that. But I was just more interested in the tech and making something fun. And what's origin name of Nimbuds? That's such a unique name there. Yeah. So that that's short for Cumulonimbus Buddies. Okay. <laughs> so, so, so cloud buddies. Okay. Yeah, for our listeners, uh, and I'm not doing this justice, but what the collection looks like is a series of different clouds and they've got facial expressions on them and then like wires that they're being suspended by, if I remember. Yep, yep. Okay, and the, the yeah. wires are different colors too. Um, yeah, so the be, because I hadn't really considered PFPs a thing, people weren't re using punks as their profile pictures really at the time. I saw it as, I'm a big... Uh, you can't see it on the podcast, but you can see a bunch of toys in the background. I love to collect like vinyl figures and get like blind box toys from like Kid Robot or Gotcha toys and all that stuff. And so to me, when I saw our blocks, I was like, oh, this is the digital version of opening a blind box, but every blind box has a unique figurine in it. And so that's, if you go look at the Nimbuds and you click on them, it puts them back into their original packaging box. And so that was my idea was like, oh, this is a toy essentially versus not necessarily a profile picture character. 
Oh, so they're interactive in that sense. Because when you said interactive, I was thinking maybe the fact that they blink occasionally, which I guess yeah, technically yeah. is not interactive now that I think that's about animated. It. Yeah, that's yeah. animated. Yeah, it falls <laughs> it's in a the, different the, realm. The, the, the simplest animated, but they are technically interactive and animated. Um, and when I did Nimteens, the follow-up, if you click on them, it puts them into their yearbook frames. Ah, I just learned something new, I think, earlier this year. Maybe it was late last year. I didn't know that the squiggles were animated either. Kind yeah. of like an unlock for me. I was like, oh, okay. Uh, that's this the is fun. That's, yeah, that's why with NimBuds, we made the blinks really long mm -hmm. so that they don't happen for at least like the first like five to 10 seconds mm -hmm. because I wanted people to be like surprised. So they're like looking at it and all of a sudden it blinks and they go, oh. That's exactly what happened to me when I first <laughs> saw them is I looked at them and I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. And I'm one of those guys that has like three monitors. And yeah. what happened was something happened. I got maybe a Discord message. So my eye just shifted just a little bit to look at the Discord message while I had the Nimbuds loaded up. And then at the corner of my eye, it looked like it blinked at me. And I was like, wait, what? I don't think that happened. <laughs> and so I look at it and then it's like, you have to wait a little bit. I'm just like looking at yeah. it. I'm like, oh, it blinked again. Okay. Now it validates. Yeah, they actually really do blink, which is a really good touch. And yeah, I'll say you had an intention there and it definitely worked because it got my, my oh, attention. Glad to hear it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that was the fun of it was creating these kind of secrets. Like when we did it, we purposefully didn't talk about like some of the hidden traits and stuff like that. And we, we tried almost too hard to keep everything very under wraps. And so, yeah, that was, that was a learning experience. And I learned a lot from how like the dynamics of a, a collection works that made me understand why I didn't want to do like a 10K PFP because you started to see like collectors holding a lot of them and then dumping them on other people and like manipulating the markets and stuff. And I was like, oh, and even to this point, I, I don't think with the exception of maybe some like freebies, collapse or like wearables for things, I haven't put out additions higher than like 400, 500 because of that. It makes me too, I don't know. I don't like losing control to that degree where people get hurt. Yeah, that's a great point. So you do have a lot of different artwork out there. And from what I can tell, most of it isn't quote unquote cheap. I think maybe Nimteens might be like one of the lesser expensive ones. There might be some things that. Yeah, there's a couple that are in that like 0.1 range. I think Nimteens, my Noble Gallery edition, which I think is like 150 or so editions. There's a few that kind of hit that range. So I try to have a variety uh, for people that want to get like either large editions or one of one of X or small editions. And then the one of ones as well, which I don't do too many of. So I'd be curious for you to riff on this because there's always this dynamic between scarcity and accessibility. On one end of the scale, you have that scarcity where you're just making one of one pieces and maybe that's the only thing that you do. And then on the other end, you're maybe a prolific creator or maybe not pro prolific, but you only do like additions and that maybe helps with the, with the accessibility, uh, aspect of it. Uh, from what, from your point of view, like how do you balance the two? Because it seems like there's some merit in both those things. You want to maintain that element of scarcity, of course, because that's going to help you as an artist, but it's also going to help your collectors too, especially the er early ones. And you don't want to burn a bridge there be, by being like super scarce in the beginning. And then all of a sudden you're just creating like a ton of stuff because yeah. that can hurt some of those early collectors. But at the same sense, there's something in the same respect. There's also something to be said about capturing the meme and just being out there and also being just accessible so that you have something for everyone at every different price point. So just curious to just hear your thoughts around that and unpack that a little bit. 
Yeah. I I did a talk in LA a year ago, this thing called NFT in America, which there's a, you can find on YouTube if you look up my name and NFT in America. And it, I made this whole kind of like chart that talks to artists about how to, how I think they should enter the space, which is starting with one of ones and then doing small editions, then maybe doing one of one of X, then maybe doing large editions, then maybe doing open editions, but like building it in a, a slow, methodical way. My attitude, I've not done open editions yet. I, I think if you're a small artist, open editions is a pretty cool thing to do because you're not going to have a ton minted, but it gives like accessibility. I don't think it fits into my model yet, but I'm a believer that like there's a threshold where if you're holding an edition that's over a certain supply, it stops feeling special and it just feels like an asset. And then when it starts to feel like an asset, then you're like, what does this get me? That does feel special. And that's when you start to see all these people like, why isn't this open edition have more burn things? I want to, I want it to, it, it becomes this like gamification of trying to make these things feel special again. And so I, I throwing out a random number, I feel like maybe 500 editions is where things stop feeling like a limited special edition that could change over time. But that's usually where my mind is at is like how, and whether you're selling it or giving it via other things, I think there's ways that you can use the mechanics of the sale to make it feel special. If it's a raffle or a ranked auction where there's a competition to get it and stuff like that. Again, then there's an added story to you getting it and that, that creates more um, provenance to it. You mentioned like a uh, burn mechanics too. Is that something that you've implemented yourself or what are your thoughts around that? That's a good question. I don't think I've done burns yet. I like the idea of them. I just haven't figured out how to do it. Oh, the thing I was going to mention before is this, you mentioned like making sure past collectors feel special. Mm, yes. I do think there is that aspect, but I don't think you should do it fully as an artist. Sometimes I worry if you keep selling to the same, like you say, you own this, you could buy this and you just keep selling to the same people over and over. It, it, it creates a bad imbalance where people are over leveraged on your art. So I think there's like doing it occasionally is cool, but you want to keep bringing in new collectors and growing your community versus just making a, a 50 people keep buying your same art or something. Yeah. As a collector, I couldn't agree more to me. That's a little bit of, I don't know if the right word or right phrase is like a red flag, but I don't like it so much as a collector. If I'm seeing like, it's a small group of people that are just buying from that artist over and over again. And I think it's unhealthy for the artist too, because yeah, it, sometimes they, some point the well's going to run dry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes things happen. I've had a collector that was, had quite a few of my pieces and then all of a sudden he was either hacked or had family emergency and he had to get liquidity out really fast. And especially in this market, it's really hard to find that liquidity at a dime. And that, that puts you in a very difficult spot as both a collector and an artist. So I try not to put people in those positions, even though I appreciate the people that are big collectors and collect a lot of my work. I also am fearful of if they're ever in a pinch, how will they regret having too much? Yeah, I want that diversity in collectors. And I think that benefits both the artists and also just the collector base in general. Totally. So do you have anything coming up uh, that you can talk about or tease us about or what's on the horizon for you? Yeah. When when will this air? Carrie, do you have the calendar in <laughs> front of you? I don't know if Carrie can talk right now. 
I, I think off the top of my head, it might be early October or no, it might be actually later this month. Yeah. In terms of things I have coming up, this will have been weeks prior, but two days from now, I'm doing the A Lot of Money Charity One of One auction, which I'm excited about. All the proceeds are going to Maggie's, which is like a, a nonprofit for cancer victims to get help and families of cancer victims to get help, which I think is wonderful. And then coming up, I'm going to be doing a drop with AOTM, which I have not done yet. Uh, that'll be a one of one. That'll be a lower reserve auction. So I'm excited to be a part of that platform in that capacity. I think it'll be a group show with a bunch of awesome artists. Um, so maybe that'll be happening around the time that this airs. And then, yeah, there's a, a million possible drops on the horizon that I can't talk about, unfortunately. But I'm also just enjoying playing around it right now. I, I did a lot of drops so far this year. And I just finished my drop with Unit London, which was really wonderful. And so now I'm like mentally just trying to get creative again. So I bought like a 3D printer, I bought a plotter. I'm just trying to learn new tools and have fun. All right. Yeah, you got to teach me sometime. We can learn together maybe on the 3D printer. I just got one also. <laughs> and I it's like figured it out, but I don't know how to... I can get stuff to print, but I don't know how to get like my tokens to print, if that makes sense. I haven't really been able to make that connection. Mm, I think because some of the file types are different than what my printer's expecting to ingest. And I don't know, we can uh, shoot the crap about that after the podcast and kind of talk about those things. And then plotter is something that I'm definitely very interested in because I went to Bright Moments a few weeks ago and they had one in mm -hmm. the flesh and the live. And then it's like I've always known about them, but then when I actually saw it in action and the actual outputs in person, as opposed to watching it on a video, I was just like, oh, that's a cool, nice to have, but it might end up like the 3D printer where I fiddle around with it a little bit and don't quite figure it out the way that I'd like to figure it out and put yeah. it to the side there. Very cool. One last question for you, and I always ask this question of like successful artists like yourself, like what advice do you have for artists that are making that transition from let's call it the physical world or the web two world, web one world into the web three world? What are some things that you would want them to be aware of that are just distinctly different than the world that they are leaving behind, so to speak? Yeah. Uh, the first thing I would say is you see a lot of people trying to transition from their physical works to digital. And the question I tend to ask is why, what, why are you putting it on this medium? What is the benefit of it? Is it just to make money? Uh, I don't think people will care if that's just the case. I think you have to have, um, a, a valid reason and create art for the medium versus porting over art. And then general advice, again, goes back to that talk I gave, which is dividing your energy. If you want to find success in the space, you, I find I divide my time about in three ways, which is making art, which is the, the, the most important part. <laughs> and then the second part is creating marketing content, spending a lot of time telling your story, whether that's filming videos of yourself or going on spaces or going on a podcast like this, this is a part of my job. And this is an important third of that thing. And the other aspect is networking and making authentic connections with people in the space. And there's DMs, there's discords. The best way to do it as an artist is to authentically get involved, retweet artists, comment on artists, make connections, find artists that you like and you see what they're doing and admire what they're doing and see where they're hanging out and like learn from them. And then uh, chances are you'll probably become friends with them because the space is very small. 
And when I joined the space, a lot of what I learned was from other people, whether it was like Sarah Zucker or Coldy or a lot of money or these people that I would reach out to because there wasn't resources on a lot of this stuff. But th those connections became friendships that I've had for years now. And so that's a, a very important piece of the puzzle. And I see a lot of artists come in and they only do two thirds of that and they struggle to build trust or whatever. But that's my general advice, which is again, it feels, it doesn't feel like work when you're hanging out on Twitter, but it's an important part of success in the space. For sure. Brian, it's been an honor having you on the podcast. You're welcome back anytime. And speaking of connections, I'll probably run into you again in the city in the future. Yeah. Shout out Brian Moments. <laughs> and that's our interview with Brian Brinkman. Brian's an awesome dude, someone who I've met in person before and have a tremendous amount of respect both as a creator and as one of the good ones in this space who's just always accessible, willing to help out, whether it's mentorship or advice. So let's move into the shout outs. How do you get a shout out on the podcast? Each episode is made available on Nifty Gateway for just $1 to mint, and that does include gas, and it's on the Ethereum network. If I could, I'd make it for free, but $1 is the minimum that Nifty Gateway forces us to charge. It's typically open from Wednesday through Sunday on the week that the podcast episode drops. So the link for this particular episode is in the show notes. So take a look. And if you do mint, you will get a shout out on the next episode, which we're planning to drop on October 16th. So for our last episode, which was with Anjali Young, the co-founder of Collabland, we had 148 mints. And I'd like to first acknowledge our whales who minted five or more. And that's RJD, an awesome photographer who you can also find on Nifty Gateway and purchase his work. Kaplui and CL7, who I've talked to quite a bit in exchanging DMs and just does a lot of work in the Web3 world and as well as the physical art space world. So, uh, you know, look them up. And I appreciate you guys, all three of you, so much for showing up and really signaling your support for the podcast. I'd also like to thank the following folks for minting. Emil MTO, Sergo, Rumi Monawar, who I believe is a new minter. Welcome. Mo51, Inceptionally, Goldcoin admires good art. Rob, who I think is also new. Welcome. Ruan1228, DV Dan, I said it right this time. Enable92, CyberC, ChaCha20, I think that's a new name. Welcome. Deco Life, Saucebook. The Rev, Ducci345, Diva Comet, I think you're new as well. Welcome. You guys are awesome. Thank you so much for minting. And listen, if you aren't minting and just listening, I thank you too for your listenership. And if you like the podcast, please, please give us a subscribe, give us a five-star rating and write a review. It really helps the podcast with discoverability algorithm on the major platform. So that concludes our show. Until next time, folks. Welcome to the blockchain experience, experience, bringing dope content to the audience. Welcome to the blockchain experience, bringing dope content to yeah, the yeah, audience. Yeah. It's the blockchain spell, made of David's got so much to tell, bringing you the latest news without fail. Hey, decentralized and secure, it's the making way, you can tempo with the same old way from finest to art is bringing all the trust the blockchain experience it's a
Bringing dope content 